From the Nipty Radio Recording Studios, high above 107 Columbia Street in the heart of uptown downtown Albany, welcome to this week's edition of the Nipty Practice Tips. Dust is toward the floor And do a little more Let the left hand know Where the right hand go Thank you, Johnny. Welcome, folks. Today, we're going to be doing part two of our discussion of the many faces of lesser-included offenses. Now, the rules defining lesser-included offenses for plea purposes are distinct in several aspects from the ones applicable at trial when a lesser-included offense is submitted to a jury as prescribed by CPL 300.50. Additionally, there are distinctions between what is considered a lesser-included offense in the context of pre- and post-indictment pleas. A superior court information, or an SCI, is permitted to be filed as the equivalent of an indictment upon which a defendant may be tried or to which he or she may plead guilty. An SCI removes the necessity of a presentation in the grand jury to secure an indictment. The charges permissible in an SCI are limited by the subject matter of the criminal court complaint upon which the SCI must be based. As written in CPL 200.15, A superior court information may include any offense for which the defendant was held for action of a grand jury, meaning a criminal court complaint, and any offense or offenses properly joinable therewith pursuant to sections 220 and 240 of the CPL. Now, in addition to those, the Court of Appeals has ruled that an SCI may also contain any lesser-included offense of a crime charged in the criminal court complaint. This was held in the case of People v. Minchetti, a Court of Appeals decision from 1990. And as well, and this is important, that the greater crime need not be in the body of the SCI for the SCI to be a valid accusatory instrument. The court wrote, We conclude that because a defendant is held for the action of the grand jury on both the offense charged in the felony complaint as well as its lesser included offenses, a waiver of indictment by plea to a superior court information charging only a lesser included offense comports with the constitutional and statutory requirements and therefore the defendant's waiver of indictment was effective. When a defendant is to plead to an added charge in an SCI that meets the requirements of the second qualification that we've just been discussing in 200.15, any offense or offenses properly joinable therewith pursuant to sections 220 and 240 of the CPL, the SCI must include the charge from the complaint to which this has been added for plea purposes. This is so important. If the original charge from the complaint is not included in the body of the SCI, then that SCI is defective. This has been the bane of SCI pleas since the holding in this case of People v. Zanji back in 1991. 
Appellate judges have called for the Court of Appeals to overrule this, but it remains the rule. So if you are going to have a charge that is based upon this joinder, you must include both charges, the one to which there will be a plea and the one which is in the original criminal court complaint. For a charge to be properly joinable, there must be a commonality of comparable elements as well as essential nature of the criminal conduct between the added crime and one charged in the complaint to which it is being joined. Now, failing this, the SCI will be found to be jurisdictionally defective as was ruled by the Court of Appeals in the case of People v. Pierce, a 2010 decision. In that case, the court ruled, and after reviewing both crimes, a comparison of the two charges that were joined in this case reveal little, if any, commonality. So the court ultimately ruled the crimes do not have common elements and the essential nature of the crime's conduct is quite distinct, as is evidence from the underlying allegations, and therefore they found it to be defective and the plea was reversed. The crimes in the SCI to which the defendant intends to plead guilty must be included in the body of the waiver of indictment that the defendant is required to execute, CPL 195.20. Again, another technical rule that should not be overlooked, which can create a legitimate appellate issue for a defendant who has pled guilty. Next question is, may the SCI include a greater offense than any in the complaint? Now, while the appellate divisions have uniformly held that including a crime in an SCI that is of an equal level to the one in a complaint is a proper method and a proper crime to which a defendant may plea, pleading guilty to one of a higher level as of this recording is still an open question as far as the Court of Appeals is concerned. Now, as noticed previously, the language in 215, which controls this issue, reads any offense or offenses properly joinable therewith pursuant to sections 200.20 and 200.40. It appears that the first and fourth departments permit a plea to such greater crime. And we've included very definitive decisions from the first department and almost definitive from the fourth department. The third department has, on the other hand, very clearly held, and in fact identifies itself as the only decision directly addressing this issue, that it is not permissible. Now, as for the second department, if you have a case, please let us know, because I have yet to find one, again, dealing with this issue on point. The Court of Appeals has declined to make a definitive decision so far. Now, the court wrote in People v. Pierce, a Court of Appeals decision from 2010, we recognized in the Zanji decision that the constitutionality of the joinder provision was an open question, but we did not reach the issue in that case because none of the offenses in the prior felony complaint had been included in the SCI, a statutory violation that rendered the accusatory instrument jurisdictionally defective. Here, where reversal is also warranted on a statutory basis, although on a different rationale. We follow the same course and do not address the defendant's constitutional argument. Now that constitutional argument is, is it permissible to have a plea 
to a higher level crime than one that is found in the foundation accusatory instrument, the criminal court complaint. So again, we have different decisions in different departments and the Court of Appeals has yet to make the ultimate decision on whether or not they are proper. Now, in determining the propriety of a plea to a lesser included offense in an SCI, there are very few restrictions as to how much lower the level of crime may be to which the defendant is permitted to plead guilty from those in the complaint. And you'll find these listed in the accompanying material that you can find in the PE. Post-indictment pleas have many greater restrictions on how low a plea may be from those charged in the indictment, and they're listed in CPL 2.2010. These statutory restrictions do not apply to SCI pleas. Now, the difference between the two is significant, as you'll see in this example. A defendant, let's say, who is a mandatory persistent violent felony offender and is charged with a robbery in the first degree, 165.15 sub 3, committing a forcible taking with a bat, let's say, is limited post-indictment to plea only so far down as to a D, a violent felony offense, to satisfy an indictment. Therefore, the defendant must receive a sentence of at least 12 years to life for the lowest permissible post-indictment plea. And if the defendant pleads guilty pre-indictment, those restrictions do not apply. And he or she may plea, for example, to a D non-VFO. As such, the defendant is eligible to be sentenced not as a mandatory persistent, technically as a discretionary felony persistent offender, which the people are not choosing to file the appropriate paperwork, but rather would be sentenced as a predicate felon. A sentence for such a plea would be two to four years of incarceration. The only real restriction on a plea on this charge pre-indictment is that it must be to a felony. Any defendant who takes an SCI plea who is a predicate felon must plea to a felony if they are so charged in the accusatory instrument. So you can see the significant difference between pre and post-indictment restrictions. And that should obviously be a significant part of any plea negotiations that take place pre-indictment. Now, when a case is in a post-indictment posture, there is a special statute, CPL 220.20, that defines additional situations where a crime is considered a lesser included offense for post-indictment plea purposes only. These are exceptions to the general rules of what is considered a lesser included offense at trial found in 300.50 of the CPL. CPL 220.20 identifies its limited use for post-indictment pleas only within the body of the statute in subdivision 2. Now, an example of one of the rules in this, which ultimately became a rule that is applicable throughout both pre- and post-indictment plea practice, but when the statute was originally written, this was only permissible under the post-indictment rules. But in the case of People v. Green, it has been held where all elements of a statute are the same except for the culpable mental state, that is intentional, reckless, or negligent, a crime with a lesser culpable mental state is considered a lesser included offense of the one with a greater 
culpable mental state. So example, criminally negligent homicide, an e-felony, is a lesser included offense of manslaughter in the second degree, reckless manslaughter. So for those reasons, and based on the decision in People v. Green, not only is it permissible under the 22020 statute for plea purposes, but now under People v. Green, it can also be added at trial as a lesser included offense for the jury to consider. Now, another significant distinction between permissible pleas to lesser included offenses and those that may be charged to a jury at trial are pleas to non-existent crimes. An attempt to commit any intentional crime is considered a lesser included offense of that crime. So for example, an attempted robbery in the third degree is a lesser included offense of robbery in the third degree. Any such attempt is one level down in determining the sentencing scope that applies to that plea. Now, there are no cognizable crimes of an attempt to commit reckless or negligent crimes. So unlike the intentional crimes, robbery, assault, burglary, and so forth, if you have a crime, the culpable mental state being reckless or negligent, you cannot have an attempt to commit any of those crimes at trial. Take a look at the case of People v. Foster from 1967 Court of Appeals. The reason for this is you cannot attempt to bring about a result that was unintended in the first place. No such crime may be included in an indictment, nor may such charge be submitted to a jury. These are non-existent crimes for trial purposes, the charging of which in an indictment or submitting to the jury is a jurisdictional defect that would require reversal on appeal, even though the defendant agreed or requested one of these non-existent crimes to be submitted. However, a defendant is permitted to plead guilty to an attempt to commit an unintended result crime for which he or she has been indicted. In taking such a plea, the record must reflect that the defendant is aware of such non-existent crime or that it is not a real crime for which he or she could be convicted after trial, but he or she wishes to take advantage of a reduced sentence permitted by the conviction to this lesser charge. Now, if the defendant requests at trial the submission of a lesser offense, believing it to be a lesser included offense, and the defendant is convicted of that crime, the defendant cannot effectively appeal the error of submitting that crime. Now, we are talking about crimes for which a defendant can be convicted. Such a submission is not a jurisdictional defect. Take a look at the case of People v. Ford from 1984. In Ford, the defendant requested the submission of a grand larceny from the person in a robbery case. Now, grand larcenies basically across the board are not lesser included offenses of robberies. It is, however, a cognizable crime, unlike the reckless, attempted a reckless, which is not. So submission of this crime is not a jurisdictional defect. The defendant requesting its submission or not objecting if the people of the court included it or the people requested it, waives any claim 
that this is an error under 300.50. So if the defendant is convicted of a non-lesser included offense, which he or she requests or allows to be submitted, they waive any appellate issue. Now, one final thought on lesser included offenses and pleas. When a defendant pleads guilty to any lesser included or lesser offense to satisfy an indictment, the allocution does not require the same factual specificity that is required when the defendant pleads guilty to the indictment or the top count of the indictment. In the case of People v. Johnson, a court of appeals decision from 2014, the court wrote, thus it is highly unlikely the defendant actually committed the crime to which he pleaded guilty. That in itself would not make this plea invalid. When a defendant enters a negotiated plea to a lesser crime than the one which he is charged, no factual basis for the plea is required, and the court goes on to cite two other court of appeals decisions. Indeed, under such circumstances, defendants can even plead guilty to crimes that do not exist. And they cite the previously mentioned People v. Foster. So we're going to stop here. Obviously, there is a tremendous amount of additional material through all aspects of lesser included offenses in criminal law. And of course, I invite you to look at them in the practice tips in the various articles in the prosecutor's encyclopedia and so forth. And if you look at the written version of this presentation, you will find any number of links to various useful articles on lesser included offenses. Now, as always, we want to thank our crack producer and man about town, Jonathan Marconi Crispino. And to all of you out there, be well and stay ready, my friends. <music>